Unfound is brought to you by the generous listeners at Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube, along with our gracious advertisers. On this episode, I talk about the murder of Jared Bridegan. I analyze the refocusing on the Tylenol killings from the early 1980s. I look at a case of a car found under a bridge, and I cover a whole bunch of other stuff, including a kind of George Costanza story. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound Live for January 30th, 2023. It's 9 o'clock Eastern Time. That's 9 p.m. Eastern Time. So you know what that means. Unfound live show. Hope everybody's doing well. It's, of course, the Unfound Live for January 30th, 2023. Seems like yesterday I was uh, going to that New Year's Eve party. Uh, that was held in on my in my complex. Seems like yesterday. Seems like yesterday that I just got back from Pennsylvania to see my dad for Christmas. And already we're going to be through one twelfth of this year. That is crazy. But uh, as you're watching tonight, or if you're listening this to this as a podcast. Please remember to give this uh, show or this podcast a nice rating wherever you may be. Give it a thumbs up. Give it five stars. Give it a nice review on whatever app you are listening on. And for those of you who partake in this live show actually on YouTube, please share it, like it, give it a thumbs up as well. Maybe tell your friends and family about this guy with long hair. Who covers disappearances, but on Monday nights, he Monday nights he does this live show. Yes, he talks about true crime stuff, but also a lot of quirky things that go on in his life. And he's even actually kind of funny once in a while. So spread the word about the unfound live show. Got a nice uh got a, a wealth of material. For tonight, if I was a stand-up comedian at some open mic night, I don't think any of the other comedians would get to be on stage. I have so much material. Of course, it's not funny, but you know what I'm saying. So I'm guessing, it's a pretty good guess, that I will not get to all of it tonight. But some of it is kind of um, timeless, so maybe I will get to it next week. Or whenever. Let's see who is in here as people start to foul into the chat. <clears throat> Nephew Charles gets in first, coming to us from Colorado. What is going on, Charles? Hope you're doing well. Hope the kids are doing well. Hello, Karen. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you for the comment on Patreon, Rebecca. Mark and Indy, what's going on, Moana? Katie, Lisa. 
Jasmine, Deborah, Kathy, and there's Twinkle. And if all of you are wondering why do some of these people have green names with these little stars beside them, they are supporters of this YouTube channel. <coughs> they get some things for free, or not extra, extra things, not for free, but they get some things that the rest of you don't get, but you can always sign up. Why does that always come up that way? Uh, you can hit the join button below. Uh, but pretty much you will have to do that on a computer for some reason on many phones, <coughs> even in the, uh, uh, YouTube app, you cannot see the join button, but, um, and if you've noticed, uh, YouTube has kind of changed their ergonomics of, uh, each, video a little bit. So the join button has also kind of moved a little bit. So please consider joining. That's one easy way to support what we do here at Unfound. And I would deeply, deeply appreciate it. In addition, for all of you who are watching live, you can hit the super chat button, <coughs> which is that little rectangle with a dollar sign in the middle. That's another way to help what we do here. And if you're hearing me coughing or seeing me coughing, uh, allergy season is in full effect for me right now. And I'm very fortunate that I got a refill on my inhaler. Uh, so, um, I got a refill on that and good thing because this is the time of year, early January to, or yeah, late January until like the end of February, this time of year kicks my butt. Now, what was weird about last year is this time last year, I was actually up in Pennsylvania. That was when my dad lost his driver's license. So I missed the complete allergy season, missed it all, not missing it this year. Not at all. Hey, Sheree. What's going on, moderator? Sheree, how are you? It was good seeing you, talking to you and Eric on Saturday evening. We had a great meeting. It's uh, part, it's, it is on the list of things to talk about tonight. So where do I get started with um, Twinkle? Man, I didn't know my membership expired. Just fixed that. Thank you, Twinkle. I see that. Look at you in the little uh, green rectangle there. Hello, Twinkle. Thank you. So where do I get started? Well, I do have a little disc golf to talk about. And I'm kind of going to do this a little bit differently. I'm kind of going to kind of uh, jump around from personal stuff to unfound stuff, the national stuff, uh, kind of mix it all around. Whereas usually I kind of do one segment, then another segment, then another segment. We're going to try it as something different tonight. You know why I can do that? Because this is my show. Um, disc golf went and played over at USF this weekend, uh, two rounds on Saturday. I think the first round started at nine 15 AM. The second round started at one. I had not played that course since probably nine years ago, something like that. It's on the campus of the university of South Florida. And so it's not open all the time. 
And most of the time, even when it's open, you're, it's only uh, college students who actually go there are allowed to play there. They do have a cl- public club that I think meets over there, I think. But it's only one day a week. It's not like you can just drive up while school is in session and, and play. Like if it's during the summer, you can do that. But while school's in session from like September to May or whatever, you know, you're really not supposed to be on that course. That's the way I understand it. So that's why it doesn't get played a lot. And then for me, living way over here, I mean, USF might as well be in Daytona Beach, really. But it's an okay course. It's not a great course. The first, like, five or six baskets are pretty wide open, and then it gets pretty tight. And then uh, number 18 is in the open again. For not having played there in nine years, I, I guess I did okay. Um, had you told me that I would shoot a total of one over for two rounds, I would have been pretty pleased with that. And that's what I shot. Didn't come anywhere close to winning. But um, given that it's a little bit of a right-hand friendly course anyway, a little bit, um, really, I mean, I had some bad shots. I mean, I was disgusted with some of the shots that I threw. But really, not too bad. And I'm kind of working on things anyway and not having a lot of expectations. I did a lot of winning last year, and this year is more devoted toward not so much winning, but just being a better player, having better form. And so I was even out today for about an hour. I went out like one in the afternoon, which is really strange for me. I usually don't go out until later, like in the evening. But I went out at one o'clock today, worked on my form for about an hour. So that's really what I'm concentrating on and trying not to get too disgusted with uh, where I'm finishing and how badly I'm getting beaten. Um, because I am so competitive, but I think, um, being competitive has actually gotten in the way of me maybe becoming a better player. Sometimes, you know, you have to take a couple steps, uh, steps back to actually take more steps forward. So that's the way I'm looking at it right now. So I think I finished seventh out of 16 in intermediate. I think that's where I finished somewhere around there. And that's not too bad. That's really not too bad uh, at all, given the circumstances and having not played over there and everything else. So there you go. Had a good time. It's a little chilly, a little windy, got a little warmer, but the wind stuck around. So it was good to finally play that course, you know, for the first time in a long time. Um, So there you go. And saw some guys I hadn't uh, seen in a while. Hadn't seen my buddy Trevor for a while. I don't think I've, had seen him since we played together at Worlds back in July. And then there's this other guy, Cody, who kind of travels around. He really doesn't live here in Florida, but I ran into him. It was good to see him. And uh, so there you go. I'm supposed to be playing this weekend over in the Lakeland area. Don't know if I'll be playing or not. I'm going to be doing an interview on Saturday evening. So if my tea time is is early in the day where I can play and get home and be prepared for that interview at 7 o'clock, then I'll probably go play. If the the tea time is going to get in the way of me not getting home in time to do the interview, 
then uh, unfound always comes first. Always. So I just won't go over and play, which is no big deal, because I have a big tournament the weekend after that anyway. So uh, that's what's going on. And uh, just was out there. No yips or anything. No, no fear. No apprehension. Just I was just a little wild here and there. But I think it's just a factor of just retooling some things, which I think are going to be better down the road. Uh, Twinkle man, uh, the real hello from Australia. What's going on? And wow, assistant Emily is in here tonight. Well, Emily. Thank you for making some time. I haven't seen you in this chat for a while, but it's good to see you. How are you doing this evening? What is going on up there in the Arkansas area? I wonder. It's good to see you. So that's the the disc golf stuff. And uh, maybe one more personal thing before I get into a lot of the other things I want to cover tonight is uh, my NFL Pick'em Club, the hood, what we call hood ball. Um, had its party yesterday where they crown the uh, the king of the season, the person who picked the uh, the most winning, you know, the most got the most wins from picking all the games. And I think I finished like sixth or seventh. I did not do very well this year. Really, in the middle of the year is what really killed me for some reason. But um, I really couldn't even stay till the ceremony because. We watched the game over there, and then I had to come back for the think tank. So everybody stuck around for, like, the second game. Like I said, unfound always comes first. But while it was over there, uh, speaking of my allergies and everything, I actually had an asthma attack while I was there. And once again, good thing I had this. I got in there. I uh, was at the, my wasn't at my brother's house. It was at their neighbors and they have dogs and it's this time of year and everything put together. And man, as soon as I got in there, I could just tell my breathing. I started coughing and everything. And it's just, this is like a, this is like a miracle drug. These things are like, I don't know. It's really creepy that you can go, you know, and really you know, be laboring and everything. And then you take one of that and like five minutes later, it's like it never happened. It is crazy. But that's who I am now. And I've had allergies going back years and years and years and years and years. But uh, this area of Florida, right in this band, like that goes from Tampa over to Daytona, it's some of the worst allergy, one of the worst allergy areas in the United States. Little did I know when I moved here. And it's just, like I said, from like the end of January to the end of February, there is stuff flying around, you know, thing, you know, it's warming up a little bit more and stuff's flying around. It's, it's not good. So, and I knew it. I knew when I went to see the doctor, when was it a week and a half ago that uh, I was going to need it. So I had ended up after I was there a couple days, he had asked me if I needed a refill and I didn't think of this. So luckily I thought of it. And then the beginning of last week, I called it in. So I went to pick it up. So I'm all prepared now. I'm going to be fine. I hope all of you are going to be fine. Uh, the real uh, says I found out in the think tank yesterday. I don't even know 
when I, I don't even know when I'm using Australian slang. Yeah. You, yeah. You said something in the think tank yesterday, something about, we call it a hit and run in the United States, but you called it something else. And that's what I think caught my eye. The real, as a writer, you know, these kinds of things stick out to me. Emily, it's good to stop by. Well, thank you, Emily. Thank you, Jasmine. Uh, the real, yeah, did a runner. So in the, you know, we just call it a hit and run. In Australia, when that happens, they call did a runner. I like that better. I like the Australian. That, that, it's not, of course, funny, funny, but those things happening, but that saying is a bit funny. Okay, let's move on to some other things. Maybe I'll get back uh, to some other, per, some personal stuff later. I'll go right to the Matthew Braswell poll in the uh, in the discussion group that I post uh, every Saturday. This one got posted a little later than usual because I was disc golfing on Saturday. But the number one answer in the discussion group was that Matthew ran off. Something happened to him somewhere in the woods, maybe from you know whatever uh, injuries he had from the wreck. And he just hasn't been found yet. That was the same answer in the think tank. And for the blog that I wrote, that is the uh, that is the um, conclusion I came to as well. It's just given the facts, it's just hard to really, you know, if you were a betting person betting with your own money, it would just be difficult to put money on anything else than that. Certainly the phone thing is weird and. But, you know, I just don't know how that would all be put together. And as I wrote in the blog at patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast, if you'd like to support the show. Um, I think we've just learned that whatever the simplest explanation is, <clears throat> that's probably going to be the answer. That uh, that's probably uh, going to be it. So that was Matthew Braswell. We also have to remember that this is a very new disappearance. One of the newest, uh, the newest uh, that we've covered yet on Unfound. This is from, like I said, uh, December of 2021. So this was actually after <coughs> the first Steve Pankey trial. December 2021 is, you know, after my first time I ever went down to Nova Southeastern University to talk. So, you know, I guess what I'm saying is when I went up to Louisiana and spoke, when I went down to Nova Southeastern University and spoke, um, you know, Matthew Braswell was still around. And then just a month later is when all of this happened. So just have to remember still, I, I, I know families have a hard time wrapping their heads around it and understanding this, but you know, of course we hope that Matthew Matthew is found tomorrow alive, but we know how these things go. And this in our world is kind of a very, 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 very new disappearance in contrast to, the average age of a disappearance we cover on Unfound, although I've not done the statistics recently. 
I still have to believe it's around 20 years old. I mean, you know, once you get up to covering 280 disappearances, that average is not going to move uh, too much either way. After about 100, 150 disappearances, as long as they're randomly selected, which unfounds are, whatever that average is, is about, you know, after about 100, 150 disappearances, is what it's probably going to be for the life of the show. You know, the only difference, I guess, we could say is that we keep moving forward and those disappearances never change. If it happened in 1990, it's 1990. So last year, that disappearance would be 32 years old. Well, now it's 33 years old. So technically, I guess, if a lot of those old ones are not getting solved, the average age of a disappearance that Unfound is covering has covered is actually getting older because we're moving forward and those disappearances are stationary. So it very well may be, maybe we're up to like an average of 21 years old or 22 years old, uh, something like that. I think the last time I did that statistic, maybe 2021 is when I did the last time I looked at that and I figured out it was 20 years old. So, so going back 20 years from 2021, that's 2001. So if nothing has really changed, then the average age would be 22 years because we've moved two two years into the future. So I I think that I would not be surprised uh, regarding Matthew Braswell that given the circumstances, what we know that, that he is found, I, I, I would be surprised if this disappearance went 10 years unsolved. Uh, that would really surprise me. I think that there's every reason to believe that somebody will stumble across him and his remains. Although I don't know what state the remains are going to be in. It might be a Tom Brown situation where only 30% of them is found, but it's just one of those. You get the feeling that it will be solved probably by accident to some hunter or some hiker, somebody doing something out there in that area of Ponder road and come across his remains and why searchers missed it before that, I guess if we find out where that exactly is, then we can talk about it if it happens. So there you go. Uh, Katie, what charges did Antonio receive for the mail theft? You know, I just really don't know, Katie. I didn't, um, I don't even, I don't even remember asking Amy that. Maybe I did. It just doesn't, um, pop up at me at at the second. It just was not uh, a big concern of mine. Although I did talk about it. I did write about it in the Patreon blog because as we talked about also in the think tank that I think that's a federal crime (laughs) breaking into mailboxes. I mean, you're not breaking in, you're opening them up. They're not locked or anything. Of course, if you know, if it was a, a post office and you have a box there and somebody, then of course that is locked, but just regular mailboxes still that's that's doing that you're messing with uh the mail system as soon as those letters go in that box it becomes part of the mail system so you start going in there that is a federal crime uh i think so but i don't know if antonio got any charges or not this was not uh a focus of mine katie might just be interesting to know Um, but given, you know, I think a lot of people would know that it's a federal crime to do that. And maybe that was on Matthew's mind. Maybe that's why 
he might have uh, tried to run off uh, even more energetically than he normally would because this just wasn't a local crime. It's certainly something to consider. So he might have taken more risks, might have tried to go farther, and maybe that's why he's missing. Certainly something to consider. Uh, moving on, uh, other news. I was supposed to talk to um, somebody who is working slash interning for the USA Today Today. USA Today Today, I like that. Uh, but that didn't happen. Um, she messaged me through Facebook and she got caught up on a couple things. So we've moved that talk to 3.30 tomorrow. But uh, the topic of that is going to be, we're going to be talking, um, I think, specifically about Dominic Holly Grisham's disappearance, which is now just past the, um, what would it be, 14th anniversary of his disappearance, if you can believe it. And, uh, but the general, the technical conversation, or is that the technical conversation will be about his disappearance, that's she, that was in the message she first sent me. But also about the topic will be in general um, my, minorities who disappear. Of course, Dominic, Holly Grisham, um, 16-year-old black boy. If you'll remember, he was at a, a hockey, ice hockey tournament. And it was his birthday. His mother was throwing him a, a birthday party. They all get home. And then she goes out to do some shopping. He's home with one of his younger brothers and an uncle or something. His phone rings. He's on the phone. He walks out the front door, never to be seen again. And uh, so I'm sure there's details. We're going to talk about that a little bit tomorrow. But just does the media do enough to cover minority disappearances? What do I think about it? Uh, What could be done better? If it is a situation that these uh, minorities in the United States don't get enough coverage, why could that be? It's all very interesting to me. Um, I I would admit in my presentations that I've done to schools, uh, there is a, a section of it where I kind of talk about that, that certain people get more attention than others. And I stated, yes, there is certainly does seem to be a thing where – um, you know, um, let's, how do I put it? Pretty young girls seem to get more attention than everybody else. Pretty young white girls. It seems, as you know, here at unfound, we've covered, I think just about, uh, every race out there. We talk to anybody who wants to talk. It really, you know, if they're willing to come on the podcast and be interviewed, I'm willing to interview them. So, I think that's going to be part of our discussion tomorrow. I don't know where it's all going to go, um, but certainly maybe we can get an uh, even bigger article maybe about just Unfound the Podcast and everything uh, as well. But that's why she originally uh, contacted me, and I think she is from up in that uh, area, uh, Dominic, uh, if you forget, he went missing from Rochester, New York, and I think she is from the state of New York. So that was supposed to happen today. Happened today. It didn't. It'll happen tomorrow, and uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see where it goes from there. Katie, another question, if I may. Who was the witness to the accident? 
I guess I was wondering if this even took place. Is it in the realm of possibility that Antonio did something to Matthew? There was witness. Uh, it sounded plausible to me, Katie. Um, I think if, you know, if we're to look at the houses on that road, you know, um, they're pretty fairly close to Ponder Road. And it so it wouldn't be, you know, I, I think it's reasonable to think that somebody could have just been right there at the window. They pull up. They wonder what's going on. They walk out. Antonio and Matthew sees the person maybe walking toward the mailbox or something, and they take off. It sounds reasonable to me, uh, Katie. And to think that Antonio would really puncture a lung or and break through ribs in the process of doing something to Matthew, I don't know. And the and his vehicle was wrecked, so I, I think that I I just am not going to get. Um, just, it just seems way, way, way too complicated for me, Katie. Uh, maybe if it was a different circumstance, set of circumstances where Antonio didn't get injured and his truck was fine. And if his story was, oh, yeah, we, you know, we almost got caught robbing this mailbox, but then we stopped over to pull over to the side of the road because uh, we had to go to the bathroom and Matthew walked off into the woods and never came back. Then then that might be uh, starting to get to shady territory, but those aren't the facts. Mark says significant damage to the SUV as well for it to be staged. Yeah, I mean, you have to really, really want to stage something if you're really ready to damage your own vehicle. I don't know what the value was at on or anything, but I, I don't mind the questions, Katie. It's just, it just, just seems a little too complicated uh, to me. So let's go on. I'll come back to some unfound stuff later. I want to make sure uh, that I get to some of this national news. So I'm going to go right to this. And this has to do with the murder of Jared Brannigan. This did happen in Florida over there uh, in Jacksonville Beach. And so I'm going to read this article now. And uh, I'm going to compare it to a kind of another murder that happened like it, which I, I, I know I've talked about this murder before, maybe just a couple months ago. So we're going to take a look at this entire topic again right now. So Florida authorities, Florida authorities announced Wednesday. So that would be last Wednesday, five days ago. An arrest in the mysterious murder of Microsoft executive Jared Bridegan in front of his then two-year-old daughter nearly one year ago. Henry Tenon, T-E-N-O-N, 61 years old, is charged with conspiracy to commit murder, second-degree murder, accessory after the fact to a capital felony, and child abuse for the February 16th shooting death of Breitigan. Investigators did not disclose the evidence that allegedly links Tenon to the shocking slang, but his most recent address has a surprising connection to Breitigan's ex-wife, Shanna Gardner Hernandez. Tenen lived at 5239 Potomac Avenue in Jacksonville, which was owned by Gardner Fernandez's second husband, Mario Fernandez, at the time of the murder. Fernandez purchased the rental property in 2017 and sold it in October 
public records show, Tennant appears to have rented the home directly from Fernandez. Jacksonville Police uh, Department Chief Gene Paul Smith and Melissa Nelson, state attorney for the 4th Judicial District, disclosed the major break in the case at a press conference Wednesday at the police department. The slain software software developer's widow, Kirsten, along with his brothers, Adam and Justin, were present for the announcement. We know that Henry Tennant did not act alone, Nelson told reporters. Gardner Fernandez and Fernandez remain suspects in the killing, a law enforcement source told Fox News Digital. Writing in 33 was shot to death after dropping off his twins with Gardner Fernandez at her house in Jacksonville Beach. The doting father was on his way home to St. Augustine when he encountered a tire in the road and was shot repeatedly when he stepped to move it. Bexley was in her car and witnessed the murder. That's his daughter. That tire was purposely placed there to make him stop. Smith said he was gunned down in cold blood. The police chief thanked the public for their tips on a dark blue Ford F-150 that was spotted in surveillance footage near the crime scene, but did not elaborate on the car's connection to the case. Authorities released few new details and did not take questions. Nelson said the arrest warrant, which has a narrative of the alleged crime, will be sealed for 90 days. Tenen, who has prior convictions for burglary, misdemeanor battery, and traffic offenses, was arrested August 18th on unrelated charges of weapon possession by a convicted felon, driving with a suspended license, and speeding jail record show. Tennant has been locked up since, since at the James I. Montgomery Correctional Center, where he was, was served with an arrest warrant for Breidigan's murder Wednesday morning. Breidigan had been locked in the near-constant litigation with his ex-wife over finances and custody of their now 10-year-old twins, since their 2016 divorce, a courtroom showdown that, that only ended with his death. Shortly after Bridingen and his ex-wife split up, she asked a ta- tattoo parlor staffer if he knew anyone who could shut him up. It's kind of stereotyping parlor room, parlor, uh, tattoo parlor people, isn't it? Amid mounting public, and I don't have any tattoos, amid, uh, amid mounting public scrutiny over ex martyr Gardner Fernandez moved 28 miles, 2,800 miles to the Pacific Northwest late last year. Fox News Digital exclusively reported Tuesday. Her wealthy parents, Sterling and Shelley Gardner, used an LLC to secretly purchase a $1 million home. For her in West Richland, Washington, property records show. Fernandez did not make the cross-country move with his wife and had moved out of the Jacksonville Beach home the couple co-owns weeks after the slaying, according to neighbors. The couple was represented by a high-powered criminal defense attorney, uh, def- uh, lawyer Henry Cox III, who declined to comment on the major break in the case. Uh, and Shree says Dan Markle is what it reminds me of. Absolutely. My thoughts exactly, Shree. Uh, you know, I've never had to, to go through this. Um, uh, you know, of course, my parents uh, were married until my mother died in November of 2018. I uh, have never been married. I don't have any kids. You know, so I, you know, really... I don't have any uh, personal experience with this, but 
uh, we're all adults here, and a lot of uh, us here do have maybe if you're experienced it firsthand or, you know, had other family members or friends who went through these kinds of things. And, you know, you ask me about custody battles and things, and me as a person who doesn't really, has never experienced it, my perception is that, you know, people will just throw anything at the wall to make something stick. You know, sex allegations and abuse allegations. Maybe some of it's true, but it's, it's really darkly humorous how all this stuff just happens to come out right, you know, at custody time. This is never something that came up during the marriage and they were years and years and years. And then suddenly they get divorced. It just, it gets so ugly. And I guess we're fortunate that more people don't handle it like it seems this uh, ex-wife did. Now, you know, being that Shree brought it up regarding Dan Markell, uh, it does seem to me maybe um, maybe uh, I don't know if it seems the way to you, Shree, but it does seem here that there seems to be a much more solid connection between Jared Bridegan's ex-wife and this this scheme than there was between Dan Markell's ex-wife and what happened to him. It seems like there was at least like one layer, one, one more degree of separation, if we want to put it in Kevin Bacon terms, um, with with Dan Markell and possibly his ex-wife being involved. Whereas with this, it's the ex-wife's husband who owns the property, and there's a guy who lives there. I mean, really, are we supposed to believe that this woman's new husband just on his own came up with this idea and the best idea he could come up with is he just happens to have a, a renter who has a criminal record and says, Hey, you know, go, uh, you know, go murder this guy. We also have to remember, it sounds like the ex-wife is ex-wife's family is the one with the money. So they would have the means to uh, pay this guy off. I think we just have to once again keep learning over and over and over that people are not supervillains. <clears throat> Granted, too many, as I just talked about, <coughs> there's those allergies, cough. All right. As I just talked about recently, obviously there are people getting away with murder out there. But the reason I think they're getting away with murder is not because they're so crafty, not because, um, you know, they're supervillains or anything. I think there are other reasons uh, that this is happening. I think that uh, it's because although the murder rate has gone down, uh, where murders take place in the uh, in the United States, what is really changed over the last 60, 60 years is that murders are not now evenly spread out throughout the United States. When murders happen, it's in big chunks in certain places. And I think those areas are just getting overwhelmed um, by them. You just the police or whoever don't have enough resources to invest, investigate everyone 
as much as they should. So even though the rate has gone down, the, everything has kind of moved to mainly urban areas. I mean, we have to remember that there are many, 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 many counties in the United States where a murder hasn't happened for decades. So although I think the world perception in the United States is that it's a dangerous place, what I would tell anybody who's coming to the United States, like uh, to vacation, it's like, yeah, so, sure, you want to go to New York City? It's basically kind of a safe city uh, compared to many. But you start driving around the United States, say rent a car or do whatever, and I uh, start driving across the United States, and you're going through Pennsylvania into Ohio. You're going to go through many places that have never seen a murder at all. So we just have to remember that. Um, the people are not uh, supervillains. Relationships, though, are a killer. They are a killer, especially when it comes to custody and children and who's going to be getting paid what. And like Sheree brought up with Dan Markell, all it took in that was that Dan just, you know, according to their divorce, she wasn't allowed to move him, move their kids out of the area from the panhandle of Florida. She wanted to move. And so her brother took it into his, uh, you know, upon himself to talk to somebody who then hired a couple of people who went up there and killed Dan Markell. And then what do you know? All of a sudden, Dan Markell's ex-wife and her kid and their kids are back in South Florida. Of course, what she says is being that Dan got murdered, she was afraid that she might be next. Okay. I don't know if anybody believes that or not, but she's not, we should be clear. She's not been charged with anything, neither of her parents. But so Dan Markell, certainly Sheree, good one on that. Uh, Katie says, me too. Uh, the Ugly Adelsons. Uh, Sheree says, Tenen lived in a house owned by Mario. Sheree, Wa Wagner Roden murder trial going on right now for a custody dispute. I'll have to look that one up. Coffee. People get divorced over abuse. They do. Rockford, I think the difference between the ex-wives is that Bridingans was much less clever. Could be Rockford. I mean, I'm still open to the idea that Dan Markell's wife didn't know what was going on. Um, I I'm open to the idea. But like I said, there just seems to be one more de degree of separation between the people who, you know, between Dan Markell and the people who killed him. And then Jared Brannigan and the guy who killed him. So my perception. Mark, another alarming statistic, at least here locally, the clearance rate for murders was in the low 30 range for 2022. I talked about that, um, I think, last week, Mark, about the clearance rate and why I think that could be. Uh, and in fact, I would love um, sometime, I'm going to get to talking about Dr. Telesco's show from last Thursday. Um you know, I'd love to talk to her about that as well, but we just haven't gotten around to that yet. So, of course, last Thursday we filled it all up with the Idaho murderers. And, um, I mean, it's her show, but I'm usually the one that kind of brings an agenda or disappearance or something. But um, I will do my best to try to see if we can talk about that uh, next month with Dr. Telesco, Mark. In Indianapolis, thank you, Mark. 
Yeah, Mark and Indy, that makes sense to me. Sure, you know it. It's the one in Ohio where eight people have the same fail. Oh, I okay. I I just call that the Pike County murders. I, I sometimes forget the name, Sheree. Thank you. Uh, I just think about them as the Pike County massacre or murders just put together. And I think the reason I think that is because I think that's what it's labeled on Wikipedia, I think. Now, uh, I like I said, I think a few months ago, uh, I did talk about uh, Jared Brannigan, Brightigan, Brannigan, Brightigan before, before they had charged anybody. But back then, I also think mentioned this, but I have to read this again because this is unsolved. It's kind of the same, but it's also different. Um, a Bardstown, Kentucky police officer who was ambushed along a highway exit ramp after leaving his cars, uh, his car to remove uh, debris from the road. State police believe the debris was intentionally placed to draw someone out of their vehicle, but they're not sure whether a law enforcement officer was the target or someone else. It's kind of the same circumstances. That tire was put out on that street. Jared came by right at that moment and he got shot. Of course, murdered. The tough part with this, though, of course, we know the way that probably worked is the ex-wife knew when Jared was coming over. And so she could seemingly tell this guy, okay, he's going to be here when he's here. I'll give you the signal. You go out and put that tire out there. He'll have to stop and then you can shoot him. What's difficult to understand about this regarding uh, this murder of Jason Ellis uh, who was this police officer is that it seems much more random, even though the circumstances are similar, both guys stopping because there are things in the road and both of them getting shot. That's kind of where the similarity ends. I don't know how anybody could have predicted that Jason Ellis would come by at that second to do that. Now, I guess that's something that police officers are supposed to do. They see something in the middle of the road. You know, if they're not on a call or something, I, I you know, I think we've, we've seen police officers do that. You cruise the highways, they'll go out. And if there's like, you know, a piece of debris or something from a bumper or something, they'll drag it to the side of the road. I've seen police do that. But... How could this person who put the, these limbs or this debris out there not think that just a civilian would stop by at that time of night and do the same thing? I think I might. You're cruising along and there's trees or something out in the middle of the road at, at, at dark at whatever time this was. It says at 2.53 a.m. in the morning. I probably would stop to do that. And so, you know, it could have been a civilian who got shot. So similar, but different. I'm going to keep continuing to read this story though. State police believe the debris was intentionally placed to draw someone out of their vehicle, but they're not sure whether a law enforcement officer was the target of someone else. I've been a trooper for 19 years and I've never seen anything like this. The level of planning trooper Norman Chaffins with the Kentucky state police told ABC news State police are the leading agency on the investigation. Canine officer Jason Ellis, 33, when was on his way home at 2.53 a.m. Saturday morning when he stopped on the exit 34, the same ramp he took every day off the Bluegrass Parkway in Nelson County, so maybe there's something there. Ten miles from Bardstown, when Ellis began removing debris from the roadway, he was shot multiple times. 
Kentucky State Police would not say what the debris was, calling it a crucial part of the investigation. It wasn't a traffic stop that went bad. It wasn't an arrest that went bad. That someone actually took the time to plan it, set it up, makes it that much more obviously hurtful, but it makes you mad. Shortly after the attack, a passing motorist found Ellis, whose vehicle lights were still flashing, and called police using the radios in the officer's, officer's cruiser. The motorist described the scene as if it was an apparent traffic accident, but when a tro- trooper arrived, it became clear that this was no accidental death. We have no suspects at this time, but we don't believe kids were responsible because of how the calculated the crime was. I think that's a mistake. Kids can be crafty too. In fact, you know, kids can be the most craftiest of liars. Um, the location was obviously not picked randomly. Officer Ellis didn't even have time to remove his gun, said the trooper. The shooting occurred in a rural area and no witnesses have yet come forward. Ellis had a dash cam installed in his car, but it was not on at the time of the shooting. Kentucky State Police are asking for public's help in identifying anything that seemed unusual or out of place on the exit 34 ramp prior to the shooting. The smallest detail that may have seemed uh, may not seem important to a layperson may be the one detail we need to bring someone to justice. Uh, citizens are citizens are asked to text a tip or visit the Kentucky State Police online or email a public affairs officer. I can assure you we won't give up on this person until we have him either in custody or in the front side of one of our or in the front sight of one of our weapons. And I personally hope the latter is the choice. I see, Chief. Ellis was a seven-year veteran of the Bardstown Police Department as the first officer killed in the line of duty for the small agency. Located about 40 miles south of Louisville, Ellis leaves behind his wife and two sons. I guess probably the most noteworthy thing is that he was on his way home and that's the way he always went home. Of course, the question I was ha- would have is, does he always there at 2.53 in the a.m. in the morning? Now, granted, it's Kentucky. It sounds like this is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So how many cars are going to be out there at that time? So maybe the odds get a lot better that it would be he who moved, you know, who would stop instead of just some random motorist. But if you're planning something like this and you really want to kill Jason Ellis, do you take those kind of chances? You know, what happens if you put that debris out there and some goody two shoes comes along like myself and moves it? Are you, are you going to shoot that person? Even though you plan to kill Jason Ellis, are you going to change your mind and shoot this person instead? No. I think what also might be helpful in all of this is we have to remember that this was nighttime. Uh, were these shots up close or were they from far away? Um, and you would certainly be able to tell that by the wounds, by I'm sure they, they scoured the area for the bullets. Um, you know, with a, with a, a metal detector looking for that, you know, was this a high powered rifle? Was this like, a, um, you know, like hunting, right. Uh, rifle caliber, like 30 out six, or maybe like a military weapon, like an AR 15 with, you know, five, five, six, or two, two, three, depending. Or was this something that was a lot closer? And so then we have handgun cartridges, nine millimeter, 38 special, 357, 40, you know, 40 caliber. I think this might be help, helpful if we knew this information 
to get a better handle on how this, how this, what this person was thinking and planning this out. Was it, he goes out there to the stuff and somebody just jumps out of the woods and shoots some point blank range. Or was he out there and because of the headlights of his car, you know, being on him as he's getting the debris out, then a shooter from like a hundred yards away, which with a high powered rifle is nothing, you know, the lights would be right on him. And then you'd, you know, we just don't know. I think this would be helpful. We just don't know. So once again, two murders seems like one's going to get solved seems. And this other one that is a huge mystery and it all has to do with location. Now, it certainly would be interesting if we found out that uh, Ellis's wife uh, jumped into a new relationship right now. I, don't, I have no idea. That's just, just throwing that out there. If we knew that, maybe that would guide us in, in a particular direction. Uh, maybe on the other hand, did uh, Ellis, Officer Ellis is a police officer. Did he tick somebody off? Did somebody get out of jail? Because, you know, these kinds of murders, my perception, I'm not a murder guy, but my perception of years of before doing Unfound, of reading Web Sleuths and all sorts of other things, is that this type of crime, although rare, does happen. People are set up. People, um, you know, I'm going to guess this has happened many times where people are in a car and somebody puts something out there and they stop and get shot. And I would like to just know what is the preponderance of the history of that. All right. So with Bride again, we're thinking this is very personal. Well, what about all these other ones? Are they also then, were they personal too? If they were solved, did they figure out that, oh yeah, this, this was a personal beef as well. If it is, then I guess we have to look at Jason Ellis's murder as personal too, even though it seems a little more complex than Jared Bridegan's, then we have to start leaning toward, well, we know about 10 instances of this happening. And in all 10 of these, they were very personal. The person who shot the the victim was known to the victim and they had to be for custody issues or whatever else. We got 10 out of 10, even if it's nine out of 10, even if it's eight out of 10, I think when we go back to Jason Ellis's that is unsolved, we have to start thinking that, that whoever shot him did know him and, and killed him because, you know, set this all up because that person knew he was going to be coming by. It just seems, uh, just looking at it generally, that's just like kind of a high risk situation. Is this really way, if you wanted Jason Ellis to die, is this really the most efficient way to do it? I don't know. Seems like it worked with Jared Bridegan. It seems like that was the most efficient way. With a, a police officer out at three in the morning, that sounds a lot more random. That sounds like a lot more risk, a lot more variables there. Maybe not. Um, Cherie says they don't do that here in Texas. What, what don't they do here in uh, Texas. What, what don't they do? I thought they did everything in Texas. Uh, Becca. Hi, Ed. I'm an unfound podcast. True, uh, true fan. Your work is phenomenal. Becca. Great to have you. Uh, I, I don't remember you being in the live show. It's weird. how I kind of remember names and things, or at least usernames. Uh, welcome. If this is your first time for the live show, great to have you. I hope you're enjoying it. Rockford, my advice to those inclined to stop and remove debris 
is to be very mindful of where you do that. Wasn't it a tactic used in some urban areas in the 90s to rob tourists? Um, there was, you know, Rockford, now that you're bringing that up, that it did seem like in the 90s, <coughs> it's, at least from the media point of view, I don't know how true this was. Uh, if I'd have been doing a podcast back in the 1990s, I would have been able to maybe judge this for myself. But we know how media sensationalizes things. There was this whole thing about um, German tourists, Asian tourists coming to the United States and getting lured. And, and is that true? I, I'm not, I know that tourists, of course, have been robbed and attacked and even murdered here in the United States. But I don't know if that was happening any more than at any other time in American history. Um so I'd have to go back and check that rock for, I remember those stories, but now that I do this every day, I'm just wondering where those just a little bit, maybe just a little bit sensationalized. I don't know. Uh, Jonathan Estes. I remember that disappearance. Uh, Sheree, what, um, they don't do that here in Texas. Um, you know, Jonathan Estes, I remember his, uh, Sheree with, we had that video of him arguing with his wife and then he's on the phone with his buddy and he said that there was a cop driving by outside and he was going to go check to see, uh, what was going on out there. And then he disappeared. It's still unsolved. His ex-wife still has to go, uh, to trial for the theft of that Bobcat. Um, I'm wondering there was, a, there was, uh, yeah, because they were divorced, there was a custody issue. That's true. That's true, Sheree. Yeah. I I was thinking more in the terms of somebody putting something down in the road and somebody getting murdered. But yes, uh, I don't know if that happened in Jonathan's, but certainly the custody part of it, I think, is true. Yes. Becca, probably because I ever learned to ever catch the lies, but I'm always listening. Well, thank you, Becca. Sign, hello, chat. Come in late, but glad to catch the live. Keep up the great work. Siam Girl 31, another new one, uh, new uh, watcher tonight. I'm going to do that. Uh, Siam, and thank you for the compliment. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Shreya's, oh yeah, I was saying law enforcement in Texas doesn't move to free. Okay. All right, so that's what you were saying, Shreya. All right, now I got it. Okay. So it seems, uh, as far as Jared Bridegan goes, that uh, that investigation is going in the right direction. Uh, but on the other hand, Jason Ellis's, and I forget how old this article was that I, I found here. Um, it seems like it is pretty, uh, pretty cold in, in, in my assertion. It's very sad. Um, but you know, you have police officer, you know, once again, what are the odds that somebody sets that all up and it's a police officer who gets shot? You will have to figure that all out in your own minds. Uh, going back to some personal thing, I have a funny story here uh, that happened to me this morning. And uh, for any of you who are Seinfeld fans, you might get this. Um, I was supposed to get my teeth cleaned this morning at 8 a.m. I'd like to just get it out of the way. You know I love the, you know, I go to bed late. I get up late. But when it comes to any sort of dental work, like which is mostly what I've been getting done over like the last year and four months, 
I like to just get out of the way. I don't like sitting around and getting up in the morning and then thinking about, oh yeah, I'm going to go get this tooth canal or root canal done at like two in the afternoon. I'm not doing that. Just get out of the way. <laughs> What's your earliest time? 8 a.m.? I'll be there. Just let's just get do it and let's just get it done. Cause just sitting around is only going to make me nervous. So I was supposed to get my teeth cleaned this morning and they had uh, called me or called me. I didn't pick up, but you know, as you probably realize with doctors and dentists, when you have appointments that if you don't show up, they'll still bill you. And this was actually a Seinfeld episode. Where George, remember, it's the one where I forget what she, I forget what the doctor was, but she was kind of going out with Kramer, and she had like the very old fashioned hair. I don't think she was a podiatrist. I forget what it was, but um, he didn't show up for his appointment, so they still billed him. But then when he shows up for his appointment and she's not there, you know, there's no, you know, it's just like, oh, well, sorry. And so George is like, well, I'm going to bill you. If you can bill me when I don't show up for my appointment, I should be able to bill you when I show up and you're not here. <laughs> that was going through my mind this morning because here's what's ha- what happened. I knew when the appointment was. It was 8 o'clock this morning. So, um, and they, of course, let me know, but I don't forget these types of things. I'm actually on my way to the dentist this morning when I got a text from the dentist saying that the hygienist called in sick, so there's no appointment for today. And immediately I thought of that episode. I was thinking, all right, I got up at like seven in the morning which I usually don't do. I know I just, like I said, I usually don't go to bed. Like after the show's over tonight, it'll be 11 o'clock Eastern time. I won't go to bed to one. I'll download this file and get the podcast uh, version of it all ready for tomorrow. And I'll do a couple other unfound things before I go to bed. But after the show is done, I'll still be up for another hour or another couple hours at least. I'll put the TV back on or something, What I'll be, whatever I'll be doing. So I'm not used to get up at seven in the morning. So it's a little bit of an inconvenience for me. I realize most of the adult working world does is already up at that time, but that's not my schedule. I make my own hours. So as soon as I got that text on the way over then, that's the first time that's ever happened to me. I was like, I wonder if I can bill them. You know, they were going to bill me if I didn't show up for my appointment. Well, they let me know only like 20 minutes before the appointment is supposed to be that the hygienist isn't available for that day. And they should already know that I'm on my way. I mean, I like this dentist and everything, but guarantee you when I go over there just to kind of be funny, but also like funny in a darkly humorous way, I might even say something to him. You're lucky I don't bill you. You'd bill me if I didn't show up for my appointment. Well, what? How am I not allowed to bill you when you don't show up for my appointment? So uh, it was it was a good episode of Seinfeld. I forget which one it you know I forget what else was going on in that one. Um, Elaine was friends with the doctor, 
And it was an actress who I know has been on a, a other sitcoms who I recognize, but she had like this old fashioned hair and they were making fun of that. And George was going to her and then she took the day off with Elaine to go skiing. And then something happened to Elaine, but that is the episode. I just forget what, what it is in the entire series. But so that was something funny that happened to me. I had a Seinfeld moment this morning, uh, a George Costanza in George Costanza in particular uh, moment. Um, the real glad it's not the one where Jerry was worried about what they did to him. What under the anesthetic caused his shirt was untucked. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, with um, Ted Watley or Tim Watley, the dentist. Oh, that's so good. That is that is so funny when he converts to Judaism and then starts making all the Jewish jokes and Jerry's all ticked off about, I think he converted to Judaism just for the jokes. Does that offend you as a Jew? He goes, no, it offends me as a comedian. So good. It's so good. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David deserve the hundreds of millions of dollars. Absolutely. That, that they did that show over the years, every single penny of it. It's hilarious. Hello, fairy. What's going on? Good to see you. So that was my George Costanza moment for today. Uh, let's move on to this uh, Dr. Telesco show last uh, Thursday. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, kind of a little bit out of my element, did a whole hour on murders and um, just really covered, if you watched it, just covered the basics so we would have something to discuss there at the end. Um, I can't get too much into it, but there was a little bit of controversy not caused by Nova Southeastern University, not even caused by University of Idaho but someplace else that, um, you know, found out that we were going to be talking about it and tried to raise at least a little bit uh, of a stink about it, you know, like using it for, you know, like entertainment purposes or something. But we got it done. It was a good show. Um, my guess is that we'll go back to disappearances uh, for February, but um, certainly given what we talked to, like with Mark and Indy, we were mentioning earlier, I certainly would like to talk to her about, uh, the closure rate of murders in the United States, her opinions on that. And if that comes up in her classes and things, but we had to talk about the Idaho murders for a lot of different reasons. She's had Catherine Ramslin on her show twice. Brian Koberger was a student of Kathleen Ramslin's. He was a criminal justice major going for his doctorate. It took place on a university campus, and she's a professor. I mean, it's unavoidable. Maybe if it was something else, uh, you know, let's say uh, being that Shri brought this up earlier, the, the Pike County murders, you know, I don't know if that were to happen now, would she, Dr. Telesco and I uh, talk about it for one of her shows? I don't know. It just depends. It, you know, it really, really, really depends. I mean, it's you know, if it's something like the Virginia Tech shooting from years ago on the university, where all you know, how many was it? Thirty students got killed or something. Obviously, once again, since it's on a campus and campus security and all that, then that certainly becomes something that we can talk about. But if it's like what happened in Monterey Park recently, I don't know. You know, it's just different. 
So um, probably in a couple weeks, uh, I'll get together with her and we'll decide what we're going to talk about at the end of <coughs> end of February. So moving on, um, man, I wish I got, uh, uh, Sheree knows about this. Um, I've told my other assistants about this, but you know, I, I really can't talk about it. Uh, I don't want to talk because it's going to eventually be an episode within the next month. But man, there is something, um, a disappearance that we've covered as an unfound now. Uh, boy, is it way more complicated than when I covered it. <laughs> and I, I'm not laughing, but because it's funny. It's not funny at all. It's still unsolved. But we're going to turn that particular disappearance into a regular podcast episode. And this it just shows you that when I covered that disappearance for an unfound now, you know it's only going to be a month or a mo- two months old. But so much has gone on since that unfound episode of covering that particular disappearance that it's um it's going to be something. But so already. Already here for 2023, it's been a little bit of uh, 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 you just never know what you're getting. Just like I said, you know, I've said many times, you never know what you're going to run into when you start getting into these disappearances. Um, you know, I'm doing an interview. I already have the interview done for this Friday. I'll be talking, of course, about this Friday's episode before we're done tonight. But I'm doing the interview for next Friday, so February 10th episode on Wednesday. And um, not to give it away yet, but we're going way back to the 1960s for that one. And that was a unique one, really, really unique. And then on Saturday, I'm going to be doing, so that's what I was talking about with the disc golf tournament. Going to be doing an interview on Saturday evening, and that's when one's way more recent. But, you know, you're going to hear some things that, you know, we've covered 280 disappearances. You think you, just when you think you've heard everything. So already, like I said, 2023, between this unfound, this former unfound now episode, these couple interviews, it's already been (coughs) a year for the ages. Already. The rest of the year could be just, you know, disappearances like we covered. And already, to me, this year would be one of the craziest as far as facts and things you know don't expect of any year that Unfound has existed. It's really, really strange. And uh, as I've told you, though, uh, I've been talking to a lot of people. Emily has been doing some fantastic work over like the last month uh, or two and tracking down people to talk to. She's doing a fantastic job. Some people... Sending people, you know, guests directly to me. Um, you know, this Unfound Now episode kind of just, you know, ch- turned into uh, going to be a regular episode. Just, like I said, been talking to a lot of people. So it's already been a year. Uh, Shree says, in that case, the murderer was missing for uh, seven weeks. Yes. Uh, yeah, I guess for the, 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 uh, I, I got to University of Idaho. I got you, Sheree. Got you. Yes. Yes. 
Um, speaking of unfound now, uh, it's done. I just posted it before the live show started. So if you are a member of this channel, so all of you in green, the unfound now for January, it was just posted. So you got something to watch or listen to after you're done tonight or whenever. This is a, uh, disappearance out of wisconsin that happened a couple months ago and it kind of it's uh kind of i guess at least similar to matthew braswell's that we just covered on friday it's also similar to uh, molly miller and colt haynes's it's similar to brennan Smokey's. so um you can partake in that after the live show tonight so getting back to international stuff this is something that was not on the agenda uh, until um, just a few hours ago. They are reopening, not that I guess it was ever closed because it's not solved, but they are reconcentrating on the Tylenol mur- murders from the Chicago area from 1982. So I want to read about this. On October 28, 1982, CBS Chicago's Terry Anzor reported that Linda and her husband, DuPage County Judge, Lewis Morgan both touched the bottle. Authorities took the judgment's, judge's fingerprints to eliminate him as a suspect. I don't... Um, let me see here. Is that where this show... That's where this story starts. Man, that's a weird place to start a story. So I don't think it's really hit how, how fortunate we were, Judge Morgan said at the time. I think the first feeling we both have is a feeling of extreme sympathy... Now that it's touched on us so closely for the people that weren't so fortunate as we. Now with the case still unsolved, new documents obtained by CBS Chicago reveal an intense effort to use advanced DNA technology to identify the killer. About And 40 years later, the Morgan family still finds itself a piece of that puzzle. The Arlington Heights, uh, Illinois Police Department is initiating much of the DNA testing and collection as it continues to investigate the deaths of three members of the same family, Adam Janice, Teresa Janice, and Stanley Janice. They were all killed in Arlington Heights after taking poisoned Tylenol. Joe Janice, who lost his two brothers and sister-in-law, said he hopes DNA will help police arrest the killer. It's something he wants to see before he dies. He's an animal. I guess he thinks it's a he, Janice said. He kills people with no fear. Of course, it could be a she. The Arlington Heights records were obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request. Those documents, along with interviews of the Morgan family, show the police department collected a swab of DNA from Laura on January 14th, 2020, 38 years after the murders. That same day, Laura also provided to police one of her dad's old smoking pipes to obtain his DNA. He died in 2018. I'm assuming there's got to be some other DNA on that bottle, Laura, uh, Laura said, of the bottle her mother purchased in 1982. They have something... If they need DNA, if they need my cheek swabbed, if they need evidence from the past people from the past DNA, they must have something that they are running or retesting. Arlington Heights said in a statement that the recent DNA testing done on the Morgan family was to eliminate their DNA. And officials continue to review and submit elimination prints for people they know handled evidence. The agency would not comment on what specifically prompted investigators to take another look at the Morgan family, Morgan's family's DNA, and why it wasn't until 2020 that they took Laura's DNA, citing the ongoing criminal investigation. Elimination prints and or DNA elimination of those individuals who are known to have been in possession of contaminated bottles has been an ongoing and important effort. 
the department was able to conduct this necessary process in 2020. It was also in 2020 when the police department began working with Houston-based Othram in hopes of leveraging advanced forensic DNA technology to solve the case. Kristen Middleman, the chief of development, uh, chief development officer at Othram, agreed to an interview on the condition that she would not discuss cases the company is working on, like the Tylenol murders. There are cases that we've completely solved, notorious cases we've completely solved that we cannot speak of until law enforcement comes out and speaks of them or announces it themselves. Othram uses specialized technology to extract trace amounts of human DNA from items and analyze them, even if they are old or degraded. The goal, Miniman said, is to find distant relationships to the person police are trying to identify, such as a victim or killer, through thousands of markers in the human genome. She also said Othram can analyze DNA smaller than the tip top of a pin needle. Wow. I'm going to move down here a little bit. So, um, so they're just talking about all this. So they're re-looking at it. Um, so they mentioned some of the, this Lewis guy who was a, a suspect at one time last summer. Lewis refused uh, to talk to CBS Chicago's Brad Edwards when he traveled to the Boston area in an effort to interview him. In September, law enforcement investigating the case went to Lewis's home to question him again. He tried to extort Tylenol or its parent company back at the time, but there's no proof that he ever had anything to do with it. Records show law enforcement has retained a multitude of evidence, including the 40-year-old bottles and contaminated pills. But Othram and the police department would not comment on what pieces of evidence in the Tylenol case are specifically being tested there. Much of the evidence in the Tylenol murders is decades old, and it's been tested for DNA and fingerprints multiple times since 1982. The process of repeatedly testing evidence can cause it to degrade over time. They just run out of it. So I want to now read um, this Wikipedia, just so we know what we're talking about here, just the general... Um, Uh, this is just from uh, Wikipedia, and then I'll give you some of my insights on it. On September 29, 1982, Mary Kellerman, 12 years old, of Elk Grove Village, Illinois, died after taking a capsule of extra-strength Tylenol. Adam Janis, I talked about him. Adam Janis, 27 of, uh, 27 of Arlington Heights, died in the hospital later that day after ingesting Tylenol. His brother, Stanley, 25, and sister-in-law, Teresa, 19, of Lyle, later also died after taking Tylenol from the same bottle. Within the next few days, Mary McFarland, 31, of Elmhurst, Paula Prince, 35, of Chicago, and Mary Reiner, Reiner, 27, of Winfield, all died in similar incidences. incidents. Once it was realized that all people had recently taken Tylenol, tests were quickly carried out, which soon revealed cyanide present in the capsules. Warnings were then issued via the media and patrols using loudspeakers, warning residents throughout the Chicago metropolitan area to discontinue use of Tylenol products. The tainted capsules were found to have been manufactured at two different locations. I think this was really a key point in the investigation, both in Pennsylvania and Texas, suggesting that the capsules were tampered with after the product had been placed on store shelves for sale. The police hypothesis was that someone had taken bottles off the shelves in local stores of the Chicago area, placed potassium cyanide in some of the capsules, 
and then place the packages back on the street store shelves to be purchased by unknowing customers. In addition to the five bottles that led to the victim's deaths, a few other contaminated bottles were later discovered in the Chicago area. So I'll take a break here to give my voice a break. See, um, the real says I had to study this case at university. Actually, I bet a lot of students did in various disciplines. Interesting way over there in Australia. Really? The real. Okay. The real, I was doing an elective in public relations and advertising at the time. Oh yeah. And was studying how the Tylenol company handled the aftermath and they did it. Given the Tylenol is still around, they did it pretty well. M says like and subscribe. Thank you, M. Yes, please, everybody give a thumbs up before we got about 40 minutes to go. Now would be a good time. Rockford, they must be pursuing the theory that someone tampered with the bottles at the store. If it was in production, which is another story, I don't think the DNA test is going to be as helpful. Yes, they said, like it said there, once again, this is from Wikipedia. It says that the bottles that were contaminated were manufactured in two different places. Uh, te- Texas and Pennsylvania. So as they surmised, it must have been that, you know, somebody was going around uh, that area and just, I guess, shop, maybe buying them, changing them, and then putting them back, you know, bringing them back or shoplifting them, and then putting them back on the shelf. Um, just looking into this, you know, I remember, of course, 1982, I was 12 years old. I vaguely remember this being in the news. And I know there have been a lot of uh, stories about this. Of course, it has its own Wikipedia page that is quite long. Um, one of the things I did today in preparing, I just wanted to see where all of these different places are, like Elk Grove Village, Illinois, uh, Arlington Heights, Lyle, which is L-I-S-L-E. You know, they're really not near each other, uh, at least where these people lived. A little bit spread out. And in fact, of all of these places, uh, Paula Prince of Chicago, you know, she was the one who lived like the furthest away from like where the epicenter for all of this seemed to be. So my perception is that whoever did this, of course, it could be more than one person put bottles in different stores, but it wasn't like, you know, I don't even know what's, you know, was Walgreens back then. I don't even know, but you know, Walgreens, Rite Aid, all of these different places. Um, it doesn't seem to me like they just went to a bunch of stores, white, you know, right in one little location. It seems like they went to a different places that were kind of spread out. That's how I would look at the map of where these people lived who died from this. They weren't all just in, you know, downtown Chicago. They weren't all in Arlington Heights or anything like that. They were spread out. So somebody was doing some driving. But I will tell you what came to me uh, as I was reading this. I was like, you know what? There have been other instances like this. Now, this is the one that has got all the attention because this is the one where the most people died. But of course, over the years, the reason it's got most of the attention is because it hasn't been solved. We're still wondering who did this. Well, I don't, what people I don't think realize is that there were a lot of copycats after this. And in fact, there were instances of this happening, maybe not with Tylenol, but with other drugs before this happened. This just happened to be the biggest one. 
and the one that has gone unsolved. Now, what do you think? Now, I will ask you something. What do you think is true about all of the other instances that were similar? Of course, they're not as big as those ones, but these other ones, people died too. Maybe not as many here, but one or two, three people died in these other contamination cases as well. What do you think was similar about the rest of them? Besides them all being solved, what do you think is the common factor among all the other ones that are like these Tylenol murders? I'm going to give you a second to think about that. What do you think is the similarity between all of the others? I'll read some of them. Let me see what everybody's saying. Uh, yeah, coffee. How are you doing, coffee? Uh, it's always nice to get uh, your emails from you, coffee. Thank you. I, I, let, I enjoy getting them. Thank you. Rockford, yeah, I thought the production theory was still in play. My info may be outdated. Not sure when they figured that out, Rockford. Uh, I really not read a story about this for years and years and years and years, but I wanted to include it tonight. It's sad someone would do that. True. The real disgruntled former employee probably. Usually that's what it is when this kind of thing happens. Could have been a pharmacy worker. Certainly possible. I remember being so happy my parents didn't buy capsules. It's one of the reasons we don't have capsules anymore. The Tylenol murders are also the reason why bottles for medication and everything are the way they are today with all the fancy caps and things you got to peel and, you know, and everything else. This is one of the reasons, which is probably for the better. I'm just, just sad that people had to die for it to become that. Deborah, I'd say one person being, being that they were never caught, never do a crime with someone else, lose sleep, slips, sink ships. The real, we've had it happen here in recent times, actually. Someone was putting needles in strawberries. I've heard about that. That was a disgruntled former employee. Charlie uh, Bravo says they were all white. Uh, I don't know about their race, tree. There was some other similarity. They may have been all white. I don't know. But something I think more goes to um, figuring out why this happened. And there, there was one right down the street from where I live in Turnwater, Washington, wanting to kill someone. The real, the whole country was cutting strawberries into tiny pieces before eating them. And it was a huge story. Okay. So here is the, the similarity or the, the same, um, of all these other ones that were like the Tylenol killings, didn't kill as many people, not with Tylenol, but it was certainly drug tampering in which people got killed. The common factor for all of those others was that the person who did it knew the victims. Now, you may say, well, that sounds kind of impossible uh, for this, Ed, given that there were so many people spread out over an area. I mean, we have a 12-year-old. Surely, if all of these people knew the same person, the police would have figured it out by now. I agree with you. However, what comes to mind, if any of you saw the movie or, or even read the book, I've not read any of these books, but I'm going to guess the movie was at least a little similar to the book. Have you ever seen the movie Jack Reacher with Tom Cruise, where he plays Jack Reacher, which is funny because Tom Cruise is like five, six, but the character Jack Reacher in the books is like six, five anyway. But if you've seen that movie, it also has Rosamund Pike in it. You may remember 
and it takes place in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, seeing all those sites of Pittsburgh, the way they used all those locations, Pittsburgh was fantastic. But if you will remember, not to ruin it, but I, I'm going to kind of, so if you don't want to know what happens in the Jack Reacher movie, maybe put your fingers in your ears for a little bit. But it starts out that this uh, this group makes uh, shoots all of these people and makes it look like some other guy did it. And the shootings appear to be random. But, of course, Tom Cruise comes in. There's a defense attorney. The, the guy who's the patsy, heard Rosamund Pike plays his uh, defense attorney. They begin to figure out that, yes, these people did not know each other, but it does seem that one of them was targeted and all of the others were killed to cover up the murder of one of them for a specific purpose. So if anybody's seen that movie, uh, I think I've explained that correctly. And of course, they in the end, they do solve it. I will have to say in the end, the plot did sound a little outlandish. But so that's what comes to mind. Being that I know that all of the other kinds of crimes like this were performed by people who were trying to kill people they knew. I then have to think that in these killings, whoever did this was trying to kill at least one person in this group. But to cover it up, they did a bunch of bottles so a bunch of people would get killed to cover up the person they were actually wanted, really, really, really wanted to kill. That is my theory on this. I think if we were to break down all of these people, and we have to remember one of them is a 12-year-old. Now, what I would do... I will, you know, being this is, uh, you know, this is my field expertise looking into things like this, although these aren't disappearances. What I would know, want to know right away about all of these dead people, which, which of them did not purchase that Tylenol bottle? I mean, I, I don't know if you can even find that out 40 years later. I mean, I know they're really, really going deep into the haystack for that one. But surely somebody who bought their own Tylenol bottle and got killed by it was probably not trying to commit suicide. So you can rule those people out. People who bought went to the actual store and bought their own Tylenol bottle. The question then is, which of these people ended up taking Tylenol from a bottle that was bought or brought home by someone else? Now, of course, what automatically jumps out to me is the first person I mentioned, Mary Kellerman, 12 years old. She surely probably did not go to the um, the drugstore and buy Tylenol all on her own. Probably not. What also caught my eye about that is a 12-year-old Mary Kellerman is taking extra strength Tylenol. I realize I don't have kids or, or anything, but that seems fairly unusual to me for a child. For an adult who has aches and pains and whatever else, that's probably common. But for a 12-year-old to be taking extra strength Tylenol seems weird to me. That is my theory regarding all of this. I think that somebody who knew 
one of these people or maybe a group of these people is the person who did it, that the person went and put all of these other bottles in other places to cover up their specific crime. And I think the way you start this investigation is you find out surely Mary Kellerman did not buy her own Telenol. So she has to be on, you know, that's, that's a big red flag. But what about Adam and uh, Teresa and Stanley? Did they buy their own bottles? Bring them home their own bottles? Did Mary, did Paula, did, did the other Mary, did they buy their own bottles? It would be, it would be an interesting statistic to know about this or did one of their significant others quote unquote buy it i think it's a good place to start i don't know if you know of course we don't know what kind of investigation they've done but it just just reading this like just thinking about it for like a half hour this is what uh you know came to me um so uh fbi uh, arlington heights police or whatever else that's my theory uh, if I were to investigate it, I would go find out all these people that they actually buy their bottles of Tylenol or did somebody else buy it for them. Uh, I just watched a doc the other day and people they knew was the number one goal. Karen, that's the same plot that Agatha Christie used in the ABC murders. Uh, Sheree says, you're exactly right, Em. I think they said that already. They tried to throw it off of them. I think it's the judge. Uh, maybe that's why they're doing a DNA. I'm okay. She contaminated for a cover-up, and she could have had migraines or just after an operation. But might, she might take extra strength, extra strength Tylenol, Jasmine. I learned about Stella Nickel in middle school, the Excedrin killer. Yeah, all these people did this with an effort to kill somebody else they knew. So it only makes sense that was what was going on here. The problem, of course, is. Surely there isn't one person who know all these people. It's too spread out and they're all different ages all over the place. So you got to start narrowing it down. That's my theory. Um, fascinating. Um, but very sad. Very, you know, very, very sad. But it, the good that came out of it is that medicines on the shelf medicines have absolutely 100% become a lot safer. And so you just don't hear about these things, at least in the United States anymore. Back in the day, many parents sent their kids to the store to buy them stuff all the time. My mom in Slippery Rock went to Giant Eagle with a blank check for years. Katie, your theory sounds very plausible. I think your brain works in an interesting way. Well, thanks, Katie. I appreciate that. So there you go. The Tylenol uh, murders. It's, It's one of those things that... As we've learned, you think these things are never going to be solved, and then all of a sudden they are, like the original Night Stalker. Boom, there you go. Total big mystery. Books written, form after form after form, thread after thread after thread. Everybody postulating all over the place. Oh, it's never going to be solved, and boom, they catch them. Could be here, too. Could be this way. Same way with Idaho murders for weeks and weeks and weeks, or for what Shree say, seven weeks. Uh, all the media outlets, you know, they're so dang smart. They're saying, oh, they don't know what they're doing. The police have blown this investigation. <coughs> it's over there in over their heads and everything. And then boom, they, you know, they get Brian Koberger. So, of course, he's, I guess, innocent until proven guilty. But you know what I mean. Um, and I'm glad we had a chance to talk about that at least a little bit uh, last Thursday with Dr. Telesco.
Uh, moving on, um, of course, it is the end of the month, but I have to tell you, for uh, 2023, I have discontinued the newsletter. It, 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 the reason is just to be a little more efficient. And I'm just going to be using the email list for some other things. I promise not to spam all of you. And in fact, I think the first way I'm going to be using the newsletter with all of the email the addresses that I have, it's probably going to be a survey. A lot of questions about the podcast, a lot of questions about YouTube, a lot of questions about Patreon and a whole bunch of things. I'm going to try to get um, as many people to respond to this. Really want to pick a lot of your brains on on these things. So no more newsletter, but I'm going to be using the email list for other things. Um, the email was uh, – the newsletter was fun while it lasted, but uh, take some time. And really, I don't know how many people were getting that much out of it. I enjoyed writing it, but – And it certainly helped me with a lot of thoughts that have eventually gone into, um, you know, the presentations I do and other things. But maybe that time that it takes to do that and the email list as a whole uh, can be used uh, in a more efficient way. So there you go. Let me see if I got any questions tonight. I (coughs) I did post that. Doesn't seem um hold on just a moment. Doesn't look like it for tonight. Okay, so we'll go back here. And uh anything else that I want to talk about, let's move on to I want to talk about this car under this bridge. It was a missing persons case that um, car under the bridge. Let me see. Make sure I got this right. All right. Uh, let me. Um, M says, so glad they're getting solved after so many years. Uh, I'd called comeuppance. Karen, I was thinking you could do a survey on how listeners came to find Unfounded. Uh, that certainly might be a question, Karen. Thank you. Mark, I almost emailed you a question for this week, but never got around to it. Maybe next week. Well, Mark, if you want to ask me a question right now, uh, we got 23 minutes. I would be happy to answer the question right now. So if you want to put it in the chat, I will promise to give it my best shot. So there was this car uh, that was found, and unfortunately, I think I messed up when I copied the article, so I'm just going to go right (coughs) now. Okay. This is coming, uh, actually, Mark, it's coming from your state of Indiana. So, uh, Gibson County, Indiana, wherever that is, an Evansville man was found dead after an Indiana state police detective located his car under a bridge along old us 41 Friday afternoon. 
Family members of the missing man named Brian Colbert reported him missing to Evansville police on December 10th, according to a release from Indiana State Police. He was last seen at a co-worker's house in Princeton, Indiana on December 9th. Over time, the investigation was turned over to the Indiana State Police. Detective Tony Walden was searching along old US 41 South of County Road 150 South when she saw Colbert's car, a 2017 Toyota Avalon, which is a uh, like a sedan, a larger sedan. It's like, I think, larger than my car, one step larger than my Sonata. At noon on Friday, the car was found under a bridge that no one traveled on the road would have seen. Per the release, a man matching the description of Colbert was inside the vehicle. Colbert's identity was confirmed on Saturday by Gibson County Coroner Barrett Doyle, and an autopsy was conducted. Results from the autopsy are still pending. After investigating, Indiana State Police believe that at some time in the evening of December 9th, Colbert was traveling on the road when he drove left the center, drove off the road, dropped into a ravine, and overturned into Pigeon Creek near the bridge. Because of recent rainfall and high water levels in the creek, the vehicle may have been moved under the bridge, which made it more difficult to be spotted. And I think they even had a picture here of... um, how, I mean, the bridge is not that big. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not the, um, you know, it's not the, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, the bridge, I'm looking at it right here. The bridge may be 50 feet long. And the creek, the way it looks in this picture is maybe only four feet wide. Of course, when it floods, it's going to be a lot higher. But when you see this car into this bridge, you'd be like, how did that car even get under there? But I guess this is what makes disappearances so difficult. I guess it makes disappearances like Matthew Braswell difficult as well. That if a car can by accident be put underneath a bridge that is only 50 feet long, it's only about eight or nine feet high, it's across the creek that's five feet wide, and somehow through physics and water flow and everything else, the car gets placed directly under this bridge and people are going across it and don't even know, then it's certainly possible when we start ta- start talking about Matthew Braswell, Daniel Villarreal, Jason Landry, etc. It starts to come a little more and more into focus on how these people can disappear too. They're not a car, but they're a lot smaller. And they're out there. They don't know where they are. And because people, I mean, were going up and they thought, well, this guy had to have used this road. Searchers going up and down this road looking for him. We're going, must have probably gone over that car on that bridge 50 times. And it wasn't until somebody, I don't know if this, this officer just got lucky. We'll take it. Just maybe spending uh, a little more time, just one minute here, one minute there. And that's what it took. Because if you, like I said, I can't show it to you on here, but um, if you find a picture uh, of where this car was, you're going to be like, how the heck did it get in there? Something we always got to remember for disappearances. Uh, Cars can be hidden in unexpected places. People, if they are running from the police or, you know, on drugs or paranoid mental health issues, if they're afraid and they want to hide, who knows where they can put their bodies and they'll just be too terrified to leave. 
even to the point of dying in that spot from hypothermia or whatever else. So we also have to remember this goes back. I forget the woman's name now, but one of the first unfound nows I did with the woman who was driving from like Kansas to Arkansas or Georgia, she didn't make it there. And her car was found inside a container, like one of those box containers that you see on the back, uh, like on a train or something or on one of those big ships. Now, she surely did not know that storage container was there when she started her trip. But somehow she was riding around and just happened upon it, went in there, shut the door, left the car running, and carbon monoxide poisoning, you know, killed her. And it was just, I think, just, uh, you know, whoever had the idea of opening up that container really using all the IQ points up there. I congratulate that person, but this is somehow times how you got to think when you go looking for cars and planes and boats and people. Um, Mark and Indy, what type of normal person disappears? I mean, good job, homeowner, good credit score, seemingly everything going well. Does he or she just wake up one morning and say time to start over? That's what that Hoagland guy did, Mark. That's what Robert Hoagland did. And he got away with it for, what was it, eight or nine years. And uh, everybody would still be looking for him had he not died of a heart attack or whatever, killed him, stroke, just within the last six months. That was actually a disappeared episode. That's how much coverage that disappearance got. That was a disappeared episode. And the way disappeared portrayed it, well, he must have been killed by his son's friends because they didn't, you know, the father was trying to get his son out of drugs and the the son had stolen his computers and sold them and all these things. And nope, it was none of that. He was supposed to go pick his wife up at the airport. And he just said, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go and change my name and move an hour away and start a new life. And as I talked about it a month ago, six weeks ago, two months ago, when that all that came out, is that once you read the article, you realize why he got away with it. It wasn't just he who made it all happen. He just happened to run into a bunch of people who just didn't ask a lot of questions. Why? Because he was just a decent guy. He just came across being very kind, nice guy, hard worker, and everything else. So being that he was a little you know, evasive on his past, nobody really cared. And at the, at the back then, I, I kind of made the point, I think that's what you need. It just can't be you. If you're going to decide to leave your life and start a new one, um, you're probably going to then have to run into a bunch of people who just happen not to be concerned that you can't talk about, you can't share things like they can share things. It's going to take that. Whereas... Maybe for a lot of us, if we run into somebody like that, we're going to get suspicious right away. And it's probably going to be on that person's going to be unsuccessful in starting a new life. It just seemed to be with Robert Hoagland. He just happened to run into the right people. So why did he do it? We'll never know. He died first. Maybe there was something in everything that he left behind, but nothing that I've heard. You know, a lot of people just don't like the lives they're living. You know, uh, you know, have you ever seen the statistics of, on how much people hate their jobs? If they see a way out, I think they'll take it. 
Um, so that, I guess that's my answer, Mark. Uh, Mark and Gibson County is in southwestern Indiana. Thank you. Katie, do you have a theory on the disappearance of Center County P- District Attorney Ray Greekar? Uh, I do. I'm not a, certainly an expert, Katie, but I just, I just think he committed suicide. I think he went off into the woods and committed suicide. I know a lot has been made. Well, there was, do I remember he was seen walking with a woman in a store and there was cigarette in his car and he wasn't a smoker and all of that. And he would never do that in his car. He loved that car and everything. You know, when people, it just, I think, although suicide is still a mystery, you know, what's going on in people's heads. And we see people from the outside who eventually do, who do this. And we don't see it coming. Like I would say this disc golfer from a few weeks ago, Justin Dar. I didn't know him that well. Maybe if I did, maybe then I would understand why he did what he did. I don't know. I didn't, when I was at the disc golf tournament this past weekend, didn't come up at all by anybody, but we just, um, you know, we make big mistakes when we judge people from what we see on the outside. We make big mistakes when we judge people by what we see on social media, on Facebook and everything else. So that's what I try to remember. Um, But it's uh, as Katie, as everybody I think knows, I'm kind of Mr. Boring when it comes to theories. And you also have to remember that uh, attorneys have one of the highest rates of suicide in the United States. I'm thinking about the lines of a voluntary disappearance, not one with foul play. I know Robert Hoagland, Mark. Uh, if you want to look that up, Robert Hoagland, H-O-A-G-L-A-N-D. You can look him up and kind of see what was said at the time when he went missing and now everything that's been said since he was found. Um, what type of normal person disappears? Just somebody who finally has the courage you, who, you know, or maybe you want to consider him a coward if he's running out on his family. I guess it's how you look at it, but somebody who's probably been thinking about it for a long time and has come, has rationalized the fear away, has gotten over the fear and not having any money, although I think Robert Hoagland did take some money with him, um, you know, starting over, sticking to it because nothing is going to be more embarrassing than deciding you're going to go somewhere and, you know, start a new life. And then with like in a couple months, you know, you're found out and you know, and that's only going to kill your uh, self-esteem and confidence and everything even more. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, I don't know. yeah. Uh, Rockford, you should see what James Renner has to say about Greek card, not endorsing any days. Just throwing, I don't listen to what he says. He doesn't know anything about disappearances. He's a sensationalist. I don't give a dang what James Renner says about anything in this world. He could tell me that the sun rises in the east, and I wouldn't believe him. Uh, one more thing I want to talk about before uh, I go, because I, I had put it in the uh, list of things, and that was murder boxes. Have you heard of these? If you browse through online shop savers, tasteful, understated keepsake storage and organization offerings, you'll find a baby-themed box for saving things like your kid's first lost tooth, a wedding box for invitations and such, and even a place to save pet mementos. 
And then you'll come to one item that stands apart from the rest. And in case I go missing binder, I've never heard of this. As seen on TikTok, its product page announces, the binder makes it super easy for the pre-crime, the true crime, pre-crime, that's funny, minority report, true crime obsessed to record their key stats for their loved ones. These key stats are bits of info that might come in handy if one were to go missing. And they range from practical medical records and financial statements to possibly paranoid like dental records, fingerprints, and lists of hangout spots. All this for $46.95. American money, the real, by the way. Savers Binder has been seen by millions of people on TikTok, especially in recent weeks, as some of the company's newer videos about it have circulated widely. widely. Several videos feature a female voice narrating the process of filing the binder's various folders and pockets with sensitive personal and biological information. Things in my, in case I go missing binder, the woman starts in one video. I had a hair sample just in case they need it for DNA testing. The viewer then sees a woman hands cutting off a lock of hair and placing it in a pocket inside the uh, folio. My friends and exes are the first people they need to bring in for questioning, she announces next. Slipping a presumable list of those friends and exes into another one of the binders. pouches. I can't argue with that. I mean, that's what I keep saying. Relationships are a killer. Uh, Saver isn't the only place where you can buy this sort of item. Amazon and Etsy have options, and you can always do it yourself your own. The In Case I Go Missing file was originally popularized by the true crime podcast, Crime Junkie. A few years ago, and the podcast website offers its own version, a free printable 53-page PDF that you can access by forking over your email address. Savers Binder has been available for more than a year and has even gone viral before. But the videos the company recently posted, as well as TikTok's algorithm, have brought it back to the fore. It's not without controversy, though. Critics have zeroed in on it as the latest in a series of examples of how our culture's obsession with true crime has gone too far. This behavior is obsessive, weird, and extremely unhealthy. One popular response video on TikTok intoned. The outsized reaction was a surprise to Jennifer Nevins, Saver's co-founder and CEO. Her store had been selling a family emergency folio for roughly three years without much incident before the If I Go Missing version came along. Many Saver products can be personalized, and one day an order came in from someone who wanted In Case I Go Missing engraved on the cover. Saver's social media manager as a true crime fan recognized the concept, so the company made a TikTok showing the product being used for that purpose. After the video took off, took off Saver made a separate, separate listing on its site for the In Case I Go Missing binder with a few tweaks to differentiate it from the regular emergency binder. There was just so much interest on TikTok that we made a set of labels to address the interest of the audience, she said. These newly added labels include one for hair samples, Fingerprints, dental records, and a handful of other things a forensic investigator might look for in a disappearance. All right, so you get the idea, and we're getting near the end of the show. So um, let me just maybe read maybe the last. Um, McLaughlin said the most useful information to include in the binder would be recent photos, the unlock code of your phone, close-up photos of any tattoos, scars, and birthmarks, biometric stats like height and weight, handwriting samples, a list of health issues and medications, a history of surgeries and significant bone breaks, and whether you have any implants in your body. 
And yes, to take things to their logical conclusion, the purpose of some of these things is that they could help identify human remains. He said DNA would also be good to include in the binder, but thought hair was an unreliable way to do it. DNA composes really rapidly, explained. You're almost off betting, better putting off a sterile Q-tip in your mouth, swabbing the inside of your cheek, and leaving it in the fridge or the freezer where it will be preserved for however long. Um, Moana's laughing at all of this. You know, I don't know. Um, you know, it all seems... You know, once again, as you've heard me say, um, you know, anybody can go missing it at any time. Yes, there are segments of the population that have a much higher risk of going missing. And we know people in uh, bad relationships, uh, women who catch their men cheating, women who, uh, you know, have gotten pregnant by a married man, go on and on when it comes to relationships. Uh, women who catch their men cheating on them. And then on the other hand, you know, guys like Tyler North go missing too in relationships. The only thing I would say regarding all of this is that being that we know that when you're, if it is foul play, that it is going to be done by somebody who knows you, probably who knows you well, then wouldn't that person then just have access to all this stuff too? And is it really the best idea to put all of it in one place? You know, it seems to me that if you're going to have one of these things, uh, you know, you got to have multiple. If you're really that thinking about this really, 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 really seriously, not just doing it because it's kind of cool and stuff. um, If you're really thinking about this, then you should have three or four of these. You know, one at home, one in the safety deposit box, one at your parents' house, and one at some distant friend's house that lives lives 3,000 miles away. Whereas if you just have one, and the odds say that if somebody's going to cause you to disappear, it's somebody you know, probably maybe even somebody that lives under the same roof as you do, then this isn't going to be much help. That's what I would say. My experience this seems to me like one of those uh, good in theory types of things, but maybe not going to work in practice. But it does have people talking about disappearances and thinking about their own safety. So maybe in that way, it's not so bad. Rockford says, if I go missing, just put the guy who you interviewed for the Julie Wefflin disappearance on my case. John, um, John Polos. I'll, I'll tell him that. He'll, he'll get a big crack out of that, Rockford. I was just talking to him. Uh, recently, he continues to work on Julie's case. Uh, I don't agree with his conclusions, but he is thorough. All right, let's talk about this Friday's disappearance. This is a disappearance that is not on NamUs or the Charlie Project, so don't even bother looking. But this is what we do un- at Unfound. We find those disappearances that are like this. And not very often, but I can tell you... Um, you know, all of these disappearances are the same to me. But when we find one that's not on NamUs, it's not on the Charlie Project, it just kind of feels very special in a way. It's very sad, but it feels very special to give this disappearance the attention that it's not getting. 
This is no criticism, of course, against my friend Megan Linez. No criticisms against Namus. But the guy's name is Brandon Roberts. He went missing from Portland, Oregon on June 7th of 2021. So he went missing uh, right in the middle of everything uh, that was going on in Portland at the time. I've not been there, but it seems like a lot of that stuff is still going on there. But he went missing... Uh, right in the middle of all of this. And if you can believe it, for all of you who are really, really into disappearances, his mother's name is Leah Roberts. Yes, the same name as that young woman who went missing up in the Northwest some years ago, if you can believe it. And the title of the episode is going to be, is called Pretext to a Text. Because what happened on his disappearance? Now you should know, Brandon Roberts had his issues, just like, kind of like Matthew Braswell did. But Brandon Roberts had gone missing before for three months. And his girlfriend at the time actually tracked him down and he was homeless. This happened about a year. He was found, came back to civilization. But on his day of his disappearance, June 7th, 2021, in the morning, it was a Saturday. uh, He was going to be talking. He was supposed to talk to his son who lived in Indiana or Ohio. Later that day. And when the time came, the son started trying to reach Brandon. Brandon's mother, Leah, tried to reach him over and over and over. Not No response, no response, no response. And then out of nowhere, they get a response as a text message from somebody. We don't know if it was a man or woman saying, uh, I see that you're, you're texting this phone. I was just given this phone by a woman. I traded this woman for 20 bucks. She said she needed money for gas. She gave me this phone. I gave her $20, but she never came back. That's why I have this phone now. So do we believe that? Of course, you'll get to hear Leah say, put that in her own words on Friday. So once again, Brandon Roberts, and if you try to do look any news stories or anything, there's almost nothing out there about his disappearance. In fact, what you're going to find is news about the first time he went missing and how he was finally found. That's what you're going to find. You're not going to hear much about the second time he went missing, and of course he's still missing. Brandon Roberts, Portland, Oregon, June 7th, 2021. His mother, Leah Roberts, is the guest, and the title of the episode is Pretext to a Text. This will give us a chance to talk about texting and how do we figure out if it's actually the missing person using the the phone or somebody else. That's all I got. Man, that was a heck of a show tonight. That might be an all-timer tonight. That felt like a really, really good live show tonight for some reason. I felt, I really felt like I was in the groove. I hope you agree. If you do, please give this video a thumbs up, subscribe, share, like, become a member, join down below. And that's all I have for all of you tonight. It's been a great night. I still have a couple hours of... Uh, Staying up and doing a few things, getting this ready for a podcast. So it'll come out tomorrow, maybe around 11 a.m. Eastern. But I hope you all have a great rest of your night. Get some great sleep. Hope you're all doing well. Be safe out there. And I will talk to you. uh, You'll hear me, of course, on Friday. And uh, Sheree, thank you for moderating tonight. Deeply appreciate it. Good seeing all of you. And take care out there. Good night.